Good morning. Our first reading today is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 30. And if you are using one of the Bibles that we provide, you'll find that on page 172, Deuteronomy 30. And we'll begin with verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, and the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law when you return to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The word of the Lord. And now if you'll turn with me to Titus, and again, if you're using one of the Bibles we provide, you'll find that on page 998. It's Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The word of the Lord. Our scripture lesson was going to come from Zephaniah chapter 3. It's on page 790 in the Bibles that we provide. We're going to begin in verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, 
to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, a daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people, humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies. Nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. So sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never fear again. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with your oppressors. And I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And at that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned in praise among all the peoples of the earth. Right now, restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of God. We're continuing our summer study of the minor prophets. Uh, today, we're studying Zephaniah. I had to get you to turn to it just to prove that it actually is a book in the Bible. Um, if I gave you a list of like, names of people in the Bible and I gave you Zephaniah, you would have laughed at me and said, that's made up. Who made that up? Zephaniah is a book in the Bible. It's one of the least known of uh, the minor prophets. You talk to... Christians, you talk to scholars, people don't spend a lot of time thinking about it, talking about it. But for our purposes, if we're going to study this book, we're going to have to understand the context in which this book was written and the preaching that Zephaniah gave to the people. Um, Zephaniah was a prophet of God, and he was a prophet of God at a very integral time in the history of Judah. At this point, Israel, uh, the northern kingdom, had already been taken into exile. Judah, which had Jerusalem, had not yet, and believed themselves to be okay. Like, we're doing good enough. Clearly, if we were so wicked, we would have already been taken into exile, and they hadn't yet. So Zephaniah is in this moment talking to the people. And what you have to understand is there's been about a 70-year period of silence from the prophets. There was the kind of first group of prophets that included Isaiah and others who spoke. And then there was a 70-year gap, which is where Zephaniah introduces the next group, the people like Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel who will come after him. And in order to kind of give himself some credence for people to listen to him, he does something that none of the other prophets do. When he introduces himself, most prophets will give you one generation just to kind of place themselves as a child of Israel. Hey, I'm this and my, you know, like Jonah, son of Amittai. That's kind of the connection. Zephaniah goes back four generations for a couple reasons. The first reason, because you've got this whole group of people who've never heard a prophet speak before. And then the second reason is because who he traces himself back to. He goes back to his great-great-grandfather, which was Hezekiah. If you know anything about a little bit of Israel's history, King Hezekiah was one of the greatest kings of Judah who followed the Lord and led the people in the ways of the Lord. 
So he's pointing to them and saying, hey, I know what the situation looks like now, but hey, I'm traced back to him. I'm the great-grandson of this great king. And at this point in Judah's history, all the great things that Hezekiah had done have now been forgotten. There was a king named Manasseh, said the most wicked king in all of Judah, who did more to lead the people away from the Lord than any other king before him. And that was the context in which Zephaniah was born. He had brought in idolatry, brought in false gods into the worship of the people. And so he comes, Zephaniah, to speak at the time of Josiah. Now, if you know a little bit more about Josiah, Josiah was another great king. Later on, he became king when he's eight years old. Kind of an early time to be king, but that's the way it worked. And then later, he's going to find the book of the law, and there's going to be a huge revival in all of Judah. But this is before that time happens. And what you've got is Zephaniah being the beginning of a group of prophets that not only proclaimed God's judgment, but experienced God's judgment. Not only did he talk about the fact that God was going to move, remove his people from their land, he was one of the prophets that was removed from the land with them. And within about 50 years, all that, almost all that Zephaniah had prophesied came true. To understand what he was saying, that's his context. What was wrong with Judah? What was he speaking against? You'll find this mostly in the first chapter that we didn't even read, so you're just going to have to look at it later or trust me on it. The first thing was that the worship had been corrupted. We talked just a second about that. Manasseh had brought in all the gods of all the lands and all the kingdoms around to the point where they had melded into true worship, this false worship. That at the same lips that they would say the name Yahweh, they would say the names of Baal and say the names of Asherah and say the names of Ammon and Moab and all these other idols, all these false gods. So it was a corrupted worship. And it was so intertwined that you couldn't even find what true worship was anymore. The people were so far gone. The second thing, the corrupt worship was the first issue. The second was failed leadership. You'll find this actually in the beginning of chapter 3 and in verse 8 in chapter 1. That what he, how he describes the leaders of the people were that they were like roaring lions and like evening wolves. That the leaders saw people as things to be devoured, things to be used for their own purposes, for their own good. They were not taking care of the people under their charge or under their care. And then it says about the priests and about the prophets, that the prophets were treacherous and the prophets were fickle, which means that they didn't stay true to God's word. They said whatever the, the hungering ears around them wanted to say. You've got folks, you see some of that in the Christian world now, some of the tele-evangelists and stuff who talk about this prosperity gospel. You see a guy like a Joel Osteen who says, your best life now. If my best life is now, I am not looking forward to anything else. I need my best life to be somewhere else with God. It's got to be in heaven. But that's that kind of idea. That's how they spoke. And then you had the priests. What was said about the priests is they profaned what was holy. The things that God had set apart for worship, they had made profane. And then also that they did violence to the law. Not only were they not obeying the law, they were like working against the law. This was the kind of leadership that they were experiencing. And for some of us in this room, if we're really honest with ourselves, that's a little bit of the fear of what we think the next four years is going to look like, regardless of what side you're on. There's this idea that what will leadership look like? What will the direction of our country look like four years from now? We understand that fear. And if we're honest, our worship, if we can have an honest conversation here, 
how have we corrupted our worship? How have we corrupted it with the idols of this culture and this world? How many times have we bowed down to capitalism and to money and to wealth instead of to God? So these issues are our issues. These weren't just, you know, centuries ago issues. These are the issues of us today as this church. The third thing was they had complacent people. It's in verse 12. You can see it, that the people were complacent. Now, the the picture they give us in the Hebrew here is that they were thickening on the dregs. It's a wine term. I don't don't make wine. I don't really know much about wine. I'm, I'm assuming grapes are involved, but beyond that, I don't really know. But it says thickening on the dregs. What they would do at this time when they made wine is they would sit it out in the sun to give it some color and to help in the fermentation. But if they left it out in the sun too long, it would coagulate, it would get thick, and it would be undrinkable and completely useless. And the other thing that they would do, not just leave it in the sun, is they would pour it out from one vessel to the next vessel to continue to purify it, to continue to make it good. And if they left it in one vessel for too long, the same thing happened. So what he's saying to them is, your complacency is basically, you've got this thing in you and you just let it sit there. He was saying to God's people, you know who I am. You know what kind of worship I require, and yet you do nothing with it. I've given you this great gift of salvation, and yet you just sit on it. And for us today, how often are we complacent with our faith? It was never something to be given as a gift to be held on to, but a gift that we're supposed to give to other people as well. How often are we thickening on the dregs? How often are we taking a good thing like what God has given us and just sitting still and not pouring ourselves out? How are we being complacent? Because these were the issues of the day that Zephaniah is speaking about. And when he sees those issues, I love that he doesn't like try to butter them up a little bit, like say nice things about them before he kind of like lowers the boom. Verse 2, first verse after he introduces himself in the book, he says, God says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. It's like, good morning. I'm going to utterly sweep away everything from the face. I mean, if you just start that way, it's like, okay. And imagine, these people have been longing to hear from God's people, longing to hear from his prophets for 70 years. And the first thing you hear is, I'm going to sweep away everything. Because it's a reminder of something so important. These people had forgotten that God was powerful and he was the creator. He is powerful enough to do whatever he wants. And as the creator, he has the right, if he wanted to, and so pleased to destroy his creation. We can't read verse 2 and go, well, that's not fair. It absolutely is. And he says to these people with these issues, there will be judgment. And you go through the first two and a half chapters of Zephaniah, and it is judgment over and over again, proclaimed by God onto these people. Because of this, because of your sin, I'm going to send you away. There will be exile. There will be punishment. There will be wrath. And it was a real thing for them. And he does that. Why? Because he wants to wake them up. He wants them to stop their complacency because you know what their complacency led to? Failed leadership and corrupt worship. It starts with us. If we want to complain about the leaders, it starts with God's people. 
We are the ones in our complacency that have let things happen. And he's speaking to these people in this time and saying, I'm going to shake you up. And at first it will be with judgment, but then it will be with mercy. What I love is that judgment, God's judgment does not have the final say, but God's mercy triumphs over his judgment. And you see this beginning in the passage we're going to study now. Verse 8, there's this moment, and there's going to be four things I want you to think about. We're going to look at God's power. That's going to be verses 8 through 11. We're going to look at God's people, verses 12 through 15. We're going to look at God's picture. There's a picture he wants us to have, verses 16 and 17. And then God's purpose, 18 through 20. I'm a person who loves to take notes, so I'm just giving it to you on the front end. So the first is God's power. He says to these people, I am going to pour out judgment, now wait on me. Wait on me because I'm going to do what has to be done. I'm going to pour out blessing on who gets blessing and judgment on who needs to get judgment. And he does this to these complacent people. He needs them to know this because what it said about them and their complacency was that they didn't believe that God would do good or evil. They basically said, I don't think that God's going to keep his promises and I don't think he's going to pour out his judgments. That was what was said of them in their complacency. That was their view of God, that God's not involved God's not really around. He's not in my day-to-day life. So he says, here's the thing. He's going to show his power. He says, wait on me. And by wait on me, it's that we long for him and that we trust him to do what needs to be done. So often I find myself more thinking that God's not involved than longing for him. More often I find myself going, well, he's probably not going to do anything in this situation than saying, I need you to be here. I long for your word. I long for worship. I long for your presence. He says, wait on me. And then he says, therefore, in that day, there's this therefore, the beginning of verse 9, and the idea for most of us is like, okay, judgment on top of more judgment. And instead, God gives them grace. You see the power of it. He's got the power to destroy. We're now going to see how he's using his power to save the people. He says, therefore, wait upon me. And then he says, I'm going to do something. I will change. You notice he's not waiting on the people to change their lives and to get their acts together and have it all figured out. He's not like, you need to change this, and then I'm coming around. He says, wait on me. I'm going to come, and I'm going to change you. I will will purify your lips. And this idea that he's giving is, I'm going to change you, I'm going to redeem you for worship. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to take those names of those idols off of your lips. Those very things that you were seeking after, those very things that you prayed for, I'm going to remove them from your lips and I'm going to make you clean. But not only does he want to purify our lips, he wants to purify it. So what we'll do? We'll call on the name of the Lord, that it is worship in word. But it's not just worship in word, it's in deed. He says that you will serve me with one accord. Basically that we'll be shoulder to shoulder, same burden, same yoke, serving together. Too often, us as Christians, we think of worship as what happens on Sunday morning. And we walk out the door, and we heard something kind of interesting, and we sang some good songs, and I've checked off my list, my worship for the week. When God is saying worship is not just word, it's deed. That we live out our worship amongst this world and how we live as Christians. 
He says, I'm going to purify you so that you'll worship me with your words and go live life so it'll bring glory to me. You will go and serve me with one accord. But not only that, he wants to give them even more mercy and grace. He says in the next verse, I'm going to take away your shame. The things that you're ashamed of, the things that are sinful, it's like, I'm not just going to forgive it, I'm going to take it out. I'm going to take it away. I'm going to take out the things that led you to where you are now. The reason they were in exile because of their pride. They thought they knew better than God. They understood worship more than he did. That they were better than him. They were stronger than him. They thought maybe we can do this on our own. And I don't know how often you feel that, but I know that I do. God says, I'm going to take that pride out. Because you can't. None of us can change on our own. There's not enough self-help books out there. There's not enough things to do. He's the one that changes us. He is going to take the pride out from amongst them. This beautiful picture of his grace and mercy. And it's not just like a a looking the other way forgiveness. It's not like a, well, just act like that's not sin. He says, I'm going to take out, I'm going to take out the shame with which that you were rebellious against me with. He's still acknowledging the fact that it was sin, acknowledging the fact that it was wrong, acknowledging that our hearts are rebellious. And he's saying, I'm going to take it out. For his power, my power is to save. So that's his power. Next, his people. He's going to create a remnant of his people. These people with purified lips. These people who are going to go and serve. And these people that are from all people. You notice that all may call upon the name of the Lord. That he is going to use exile. He's going to use their sin. He's going to use his judgment of their sin to send people to the ends of the earth and they're going to bring people back. It says, even from as far away as the rivers of Cush, he's going to bring them back from the ends of the earth. People are going to be brought into the kingdom because of God using judgment in exile. That people who've never heard before will hear who God is. And he's going to bring these people in. And what he says about them is so amazing. He's going to make them like him. Verse 5 kind of gives us a little rundown of who God is, and we get that from here too. They will have no injustice, they will speak no lies, and no deceit will be found in their mouth. That's how he is clarifying and talking about his people, his redeemed people that he has worked in. That's the picture of what he wants us to see. And because he's taken his judgment away, because he's taken our sin away, he calls us to sing and shout and rejoice and be glad and do not be afraid. That as his people, when we realize how much we've been forgiven from, we will gladly give him all of our worship. My biggest problem, my biggest issue when I don't worship is because I think I'm pretty good. I think I'm a pretty good guy who does pretty good things. I don't see the deep need and the deep wickedness that is within me. I don't remember all the things that I was before Christ. Because when I do, when I catch a glimpse of the mercy and grace he has shown me, my heart is eager to serve him and love him and worship him. But so often I just forget. I just take for granted. I just get complacent. I just get content with the little bit that I've got of God and I don't want any more. 
Because more means he might ask more of me. When he deserves all of who I am. So he has this people that he is wanting to send out. And he wants to promise these people his presence as the king. And that they don't have to be afraid anymore. He's taken away their judgment. He's defeated their enemies. And he is among them. That's what we need to be reminded of as his people. He has taken away our sin. He's taken away the judgment that our sins deserve. And he promises his presence among us. But then he gives them a picture. If you look at verse 17, we're going to break it down real quick. He gives them a picture. These are people he's speaking to. This is hard for us to understand. He is speaking to people that within 50 years are going to be taken away. Most of the people in the hearing and reading of this were going to be pulled out of their land, out of their homes, separated from their loved ones, and sent far away because of their sin. And in that moment, it's going to be easy for them to feel like God is far. God doesn't care about us. God has forgotten us. The same thing that happened in Exodus when they were in slavery. It's like God has forgotten who we are and where we are. He says, I want to give you a picture. I want to convince you of how much I love you. So no matter how dark it gets, no matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult it seems, you'll have this in your mind. And when we look at this picture, for us in our generation at this time, this picture makes a whole lot more sense than it did for them. Because of Jesus, when Jesus taught us to pray, what did he say? Say, our Father. This idea of Abba, that God is our dad, that God loves us and cares about us like a father does for his children. That was not a picture of God that was in the Old Testament. They did not see God in that way. They saw God as holy. They saw God as separate. They saw God as big and powerful. But he's going to give them a picture of a God who loves them like a father. This is what he says. He says, the Lord your God. And that's so important. It's easy for them to think, well, God was with the people a long time ago when he parted the Red Sea. He's like, I'm the same God to you as I was to them. Well, God was their God when he you know, knocked down the walls of Jericho. I'm the same God to you as I was to them. It's easy for us to believe this God is like a corporate God, kind of for his people, kind of for the church. He wants you to know he is your God. He is personal. He loves you in a personal way. The Lord, your God, it says, is in your midst. They saw God as far away. They saw God as up on a mountain or as a pillar of smoke or a pillar of fire or up in heaven or in the tabernacle or in the temple, untouchable. He's saying, God, the Lord, your God, is in your midst. The word there is in your inmost being, in your innards, as it were. That you couldn't even separate him out. He's going to be that much apart. And we see that promise fulfilled in Christ. For the word was made flesh and he made his dwelling among us. God was no longer far off. He's in the midst of them. He's with his people. The king, the powerful king is there to defend and to help and to guide. The mighty one, he will save. He is the mighty, the promised king, the promised Messiah. And it says not he can save or he might save. It says he will save. 
He will use that power with which he created. He will use that power with which he judged to save. He is mighty to save. He has conquered the grave. The mighty one who will save you. It said he will rejoice over you with gladness. This is one of the few times I actually like the NIV better than the ESV. The NIV says, he will take great delight in you. Because if we're honest, most of us, we know God loves us in a way that he has to love us because God is love, but we don't think he likes us very much. We think he kind of feels bound to us in some way. Like, well, I mean, I guess I have to love them regardless of what. If he's saying he takes great delight in us, he likes you. He longs to be with you and around you. It's not the crazy uncle or cousin that you have that you have to love because they share your last name, but you don't want to be around them ever. It's not like that. You're not Cousin Eddie from like Christmas vacation. That's not who you are. It's not how God sees you. He delights in you. In the same way, he delights to do good for his people. He takes great delight in you. Then it says, he will quiet you with his love. When you are all powerful, you can get people quiet by any means necessary. If God wanted to quiet us right now, he has a whole arsenal at his disposal. But he says he will quiet you with his love. This word love is only used in the Old Testament 35 times. Ten times in Song of Solomon. That'll give you an idea of what we're talking about. It's used to describe the way that Jacob felt about Rachel. That even after he was tricked into having Leah as his wife, and it said the next seven years were as a day because he loved her so much. That's the word. That deep love. That God is not going to quiet you in anger. He's not going to tell you to shut up. He's going to treat you like a child when they're crying and you see their parents scoop them up into their arms and shh and pat. He will quiet you with his love. When hard things come, when difficulties come, when you just don't know where to do, what to turn, he will quiet you with his love for you. And then it says, he will exult over you with loud singing. I've done a lot of research. I've looked in a lot of places. I'm sure someone's going to email me and try to tell me I'm wrong, and that's okay. I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm wrong every day of my life. It's the only place I can find in the Bible where God the Father sings. Jesus, yes. Angels, yes. Other people, yes. God the Father sings over his children the idea of a father or a mother singing over their kids when they put them to bed, singing a lullaby, that he cares so much about you, he will sing over you. And it says he's going to sing over you with loud singing, because guys, typically, a lot of guys, singing is more mouthing the words, not not in here, I'm not, this is not judgment on anybody in here, I'm sure you all sang, but a lot of times guys don't boisterously raise their voices. God will sing over you with loud, joyful singing. 
The same word is used for the songs sang by the captives as they've been taken out of Zion when God saved them. That joyful singing. That picture of merciful, loving, tender, gracious, caring father is the picture he wanted them to take with them as they go off into exile. And it's the same picture you need to know today. Most of us find ourselves seeing an angry, frustrated God, either by our own shame, by our sin. We think that God is always out there to get us. When God wants to show you the picture of a tender and loving father. And for some of you in here, the picture of a father is not a good picture of God. For some of you, the picture of a father is hurtful and it's difficult. You're like, if, if, if that's what God is like, I don't want that. God calls himself the father that you couldn't have on earth, no matter how good your dad was. He loves you. He quiets you with his love. He rejoices over you with loud singing. That's the picture. And now the purpose, verses 18 through 20. He does this for a reason. It says he does this to make his people renowned to give them renown, to give them a name. And when God gives his people a name, it's for the purpose of giving God a name, for glorifying him. The promise he made to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that I might bless the nations, that people will be able to hear about me from you in your life. And here's seven things he does. I'm not going to go through them. There's seven I wills he does to the people that basically reverses what happened in exile. They were put to shame. They were taken away. He says, I will bring you back. I will gather you. I will take away your shame. I will make you a name so that that name is a name you may take with you. God saved us that we might be the voice of Christ in our culture. We are the remnant of today. If you are trusting alone in Christ, you are the remnant that God wants to use to transform this culture. You are the very people. You are plan A to change the culture around you. Now, I just want, for a minute, I just want to speak from the heart for a second. Um, I've grown up in Knoxville my whole life, but most of my formative years, I would say, are the last 12 years in Memphis, Tennessee. And in light of everything that's been going on in our society, it's easy to live in Knoxville and feel very distant from what's going on. It's easy to see those issues as Minneapolis issues or Baton Rouge issues or Dallas issues. When I lived in Memphis, it was a daily issue. We talked about racial reconciliation. We talked about bringing people together on a daily basis because we were confronted with it on a daily basis. And it is easy to go off and to kind of hide off into the corner and just pretend this is happening somewhere else. When the truth is, for those of us that are in Christ, we can be complacent no longer. And for me, this is personal. I'll just be honest. It's a personal thing for me. When I first moved to Memphis, Tennessee, if I'm honest, I was, I was racist. I didn't know that I was. I wasn't the outwardly burning cross kind, but I was the kind that sometimes when I saw people who looked different than me, I would clutch my wallet or my keys a little tighter. I would say things about their people, their culture, not getting it, not understanding at all. 
And that all changed when I made a friend with one guy. His name is Myron Thomas. He was a guy that I just wanted to get to know. I wasn't trying to go to be around him to save him or because I wanted to serve him, or because I thought I was better than him. I realized this sin in my heart and I wanted to do something about it. So I had a relationship with this guy. He is today one of my dearest friends. And I called him yesterday and I said, Myron, what do I make of all this? And it's easy for us to judge. It's easy for us to place blame and it's on this person or that culture. None of us know what really happened. None of us know the stories. But what I do know is this. There's something wrong that I'm afraid for my friend. That if he gets pulled over, he might get shot for no other reason except for the fact that he's an African-American. That's not okay. That's not justice. And as Christians, we want to point to a thousand different things. We want to deflect. We want to pull away. What I'm telling you today, church, do not be complacent any longer. When I hear these stories, I put his face there. It could have been him and his kids and his wife as much as it could have been anyone else. And that's not okay. It's not okay that simply because the color of your skin, you have to have a long conversation with your children about what happens if you get pulled over. Most of us are not going to worry about that today. If we go speeding down Kingston Pike and get pulled over, we're not concerned. That's not true for everyone. And we have to say and do something about that. We worship a God who has conquered the grave. Certainly he can conquer this old sin and this old fear that we have. Because our biggest issues is we don't see each other as equals. We don't trust each other as equals. We see each other as different. And only the Holy Spirit can change our hearts to see each other as equals. Because we are. We are all God's children. We are all created in God's image regardless of the color of our skin. We are not to be complacent any longer. We are no longer to be quiet and off in the side and think that happens to other people in other places. Wrong is wrong is wrong is wrong. So I encourage you to let your heart be moved. Unfortunately, we live in a culture where we see stuff like this on TV every day and we don't think a thing of it. I encourage you to let that in. To see it for what it is, that it's injustice and it's wrong. And then I ask you to pray. To pray for your own heart first. And to pray for this country to heal itself from years and years and years of division. The people who get frustrated when things like Black Lives Matter come up, the reason that organization exists is because the church has been silent. We've said nothing. And we can stay silent no longer. Church, I want you to be the hands and feet of Jesus, but also the mouth of Jesus Christ. What would Christ say in all these circumstances and situations? How would he have responded? That should be how we respond. He has forgiven you much. He reminds you that he 
loves you. He is a caring father. He rejoices over you with singing. He quiets you with his love. He is going to make you a name that you might proclaim his name. How will you this week proclaim the name of Jesus Christ? How will you allow his Holy Spirit to wake you up from the complacency that you're living in today? Because he is mighty and he wants to use that power to save. And he wants to use you to do it. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much that you are mighty to save. Thank you that you don't treat us as our sins deserve, but that you give us grace and mercy. Thank you that we know that we can trust in you above all things. And Lord, I pray just now for a moment in silence that we would pray for our nation, we would pray for our country, we would pray for our own hearts, Father. Lord, we thank you that you give us the power, that you've made us to be your people, that you've given us this picture of your caring love for us, that when we see how much we've been forgiven, that we would be your vehicles and your vessels to bless the world around us. Lord, empower us by your Holy Spirit to do it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.